Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the arts and health podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Our guest this week is Tara Lakin. Tara is the Head of Stroke Support for the Stroke Association, managing stroke services in Kent, Sussex and Essex. This interview was recorded during the period of the lockdown. Tara Lakin, um, welcome to Right Side of the Brain. Tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? Um, quite embarrassingly, I grew up about 100 yards from where I'm currently sitting. Uh, so uh, I grew up in Ashford, um, a street away from where I currently live. Um, I have two brothers and a sister and uh my parents, uh, my mother was a nurse and my father is a computer programmer and he has kind of worked for um, companies like uh, the Railway and Orange and briefly for Apple. But at the wrong time, he, um, he was in the mobile phone industry before it made any real money. He was working with a Macintosh and Apple before they made any real money. So my dad kind of um, found found himself jumping from job to job, uh, doing interesting programming pieces of work before the industry actually had any real breakthrough. Um, so, so he was a little bit ahead of his time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We had we had computers lying around our house. Our house. So I was kind of used to messing around with with computers from a very early age which has been really mm-hmm. handy because it just means that I'm just quite confident with working out programs. So there you are um, very very used to playing around with computers as, as, a, as a child and young person. What, what were the early aspirations of the younger Tara Lakin? So my mother was a nurse and um, yeah. uh, half of my family were also nurses um my mother was Irish they I think there was there was quite a an expectation that if you are a girl you become a nun or you go or you become a nurse so I was I was told from a very young age that I was going to become a nurse um and I think I kind of um had accepted that and was moving in that direction I had enjoyed science at school but I, I kind of had a secret passion for, for reading and poetry and storytelling um, that I kind of, I didn't fully listen to. I, you know, the way that it was like, um, like a naughty passion. I, I always excelled in English and really enjoyed it. But um, just, I kind of pushed it to one side. I didn't think that I should should study it because I I was being told all the time that I was going to study nursing. Could I ask you then, Tara, uh, mm-hmm. when you talk about that background and you say you know things like um, you know there was there was an attitude or or an expectation of what uh, women would do, is, is is that a Catholic background that you grew up in? Yes, yes, it was. Interestingly, uh, my mother and all my family in Ireland um, are Catholic. But my mother married my father, who was the son of a Methodist minister. So I 
kind of had um, an understanding of both religions growing up, um, but neither of my mm-hmm. parent, neither of my direct parents, um, were strong believers, but their family members all were. So, um, so that was that was quite interesting because I think my parents sort of said, "Take it with a pinch of salt, but believe if you want, and we'll support you regardless." And it was really interesting comparing the two religions as a child as well, uh, where in my um, we would go and have summers in Ireland in my grandmother's house. Everything was very, very strict, but also very warm and friendly. Um, and then on my father's side, uh, my grandparents, they, they, uh, my dad was born out in, my father was born out in West Africa because they were missionaries out there. But uh, they were, they were very, very relaxed. And um, they, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't have even known that my granddad was a minister because he would never remotely push it or he would only mention religion if someone else asked him a question about it. So your your grandfather was a missionary. Yeah. And that's why your father was born in West Africa. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Wow. Where, whereabouts in West Africa was he born? Uh, out in Ghana. Oh, right. In a place called Kamasi. He was there till he was about 12. And then they came, my my grandparents came back to the UK. So there you are, you're, you're, you're growing up in, in Ashford, you have a, a secret a guilty pleasure, which is loving, you know, literature and, and the arts. Yeah. Um, you're very good at computers. Where did you go off to university? And what did you study? I went off to university in Kent in Canterbury, and I studied English literature. I kind of I was probably quite flighty at the time, being um, 18, 19 years old. And I, I enjoyed English the most because I could cover a bit of everything through the subject. I felt like you could psychoanalyze the poems and aesthetics and novels and um, literature. Um, but it, there was a lot of sociology in it. There was um, a lot of Marxism and um, so many different interesting topics and uh, history came into it. Um I even even politics. I I took all of the the variety of modules that I could possibly take. I I, I did, so that I had a wide range, um, and I loved my time studying. Um, and I had actually I was enrolled on to do my masters as well uh, for when I finished. Um, however, my mother um, became quite quite unwell, and my younger sister, who's sort of ten years my junior. Um, I ended up having to, she kind of partially had to start living with me. So I dropped the plans of doing a master's and I went into the world of work. Because your mom became ill, you effectively were helping the family by looking after your younger sister, is that right? Yes, yeah. She came to live with me permanently from when she was 15, but for, so my parents separated, um, so she kind of would stay between my father's house and my house and she was my mm-hmm. she was my stepsister so her father my father's not her father yeah mm-hmm. but my dad considered her a daughter nonetheless so what happened next you've you've finished this degree you're you're helping look after your sister what what uh, was next with regards to your career journey i got very lucky to be honest i um my first job was um an interesting job where I was like a parcel investigator with CityLink, uh, which sounds 
Sounds interesting, doesn't it? What is a parcel investigator? Every day, people would lose their parcels and it would, uh, a parcel would make its way to a different depot or someone else's house. Um, and I would retrace the tracks and track down uh, track down the missing parcels and uh, make sure that they were delivered to the right places, which actually was quite good fun. Um, but it, it, um, it gave me administrative experience and uh, a job came up at Shelter, which was uh, based in Ashford, which was a housing advice centre, um, which also dabbled in debt advice and uh, welfare benefit advice. So I got an admin job there, um, mm-hmm. which which is why I can which is where I consider myself to be very lucky uh, because mm. it was it was absolutely eye opening. Um, I started doing some volunteering, uh, triaging people as they came um, came into one of our surgeries, looking for advice. Um, yeah. these, these were often people that were in very bad situations in terms of housing. So um, only about sort of 10% was actually street homelessness. The rest of it was getting legal advice where there were there were troublesome landlords, uh, disrepair and um, landlords like evicting people unnecessarily. Um, and then people with issues with tenants or neighbours, but mostly where people were in overcrowded, cramped conditions looking to try and figure out their best options to move. Right. Um, this was also in sort of 2006, 2007, when there was the, the financial crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of a sudden, through our doors, we started getting very wealthy, like art dealers um, who, who had, had very expensive mortgages, like £2,000 a month, and all of a sudden have absolutely no income and were going to be repossessed. So um stepped up and... After I did some volunteering, they put me through some training. Um, and within about a year, I was trained in housing advice. So how long were you there for? I was at shelter for five years and also, and then slowly also did uh, debt advice and welfare benefit advice as well. Um, mm-hmm. And then had the opportunity of doing a very exciting project in a prison. Well, in seven prisons, in fact. Tara, could you describe this project that you were doing in prison? Yeah, so it was... Um, it was a project funded by the Ministry of Justice and um, it was where my role was trainer and advisor to the Seven Kent prisons. Um, and I had to train up a team of prisoners in every prison to like run an advice centre based in prison so that everybody coming out of prison had um, either a hostel to go to or suitable accommodation and it was it was fantastic because I got to meet some very lovely people and do some really interesting work um and the prison the prisons in Kent never had their had never had their highest discharge figures into accommodation so what what happened next Tara uh, career-wise so after that I found a job at the Stroke Association um so during this time, my kid sister that I had, I was uh, then looking after full time, was in enrolling into nursing herself. Um, she's now a qualified nurse and she loves it. Um, but I was I was helping her with a lot of the health stuff, and um, it was about the time that uh, my grandfather, the Methodist minister, um, had a bad 
had a very bad stroke and uh, was on, on a stroke ward for about for about two months before he sadly passed away. We learnt a lot about stroke through that experience, and about the same time, come the Chris, Christmas two thousand and eleven, no two thousand and ten, um, I saw a job at the Stroke Association as a assistant regional manager um, based out of Maidstone in Kent, um, covering the Kent area. So um, I I guess I I felt that um, the prisons project, I had gained lots of experience of um, kind of ma- kind of managing staff. I had a I had a workforce um, in prisons, but they were non-paid. Um, but nonetheless, I'd I'd done all of their training and support, and um, I felt that the job would be well suited to me. Plus, with my interest in stroke, um, so I took a chance, and I was successful. So that was in two thousand and eleven. And as said, I started covering Kent, um, but then quickly had to cover for a colleague, and had I was then also covering West Sussex. And then in my time, in my nearly 10 years that I've had at the Stroke Association, I've covered East Sussex, West Sussex, Kent, uh, and also Essex as well. So quite a large area. So could, could you describe then, Tara, the stroke provision for people in those areas of, of, of Kent and, and Sussex, etc., relative to other areas? So, Nerge, well, I think... It's actually, it's okay. It's not too bad. We we have full coverage. Um, so some areas in the country don't have any stroke recovery services, uh, sadly, which we do. Um, so I've got at least one coordinator that um, that is able to give stroke advice and support um, in each of those areas. But uh, we've got pockets of other interesting and diverse services as well. So in Colchester, uh, we have an emotional support service, which is a counselling service for stroke survivors, which I think is really key um, and is is really effective, because especially because so many stroke survivors uh, struggle emotionally after stroke. And that's a, that's a trained counsellor that does one-to-one and group sessions with a carer and stroke survivor. So does the carer and the stroke survivor go to them? In a non-COVID world, yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they make... Right. She prefers to do home visits and see people in their home environment, but she has a clinic as well. What is the most common concern uh, or issue that uh, stroke survivors express to to the counsellor and also to to the Stroke Association? So that's, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, And it's actually something that we capture. So when our coordinators do a needs assessment, they have different categories and the three highest categories of uh, areas that need support um, or advice on are generally fatigue post-stroke, communication post-stroke, and uh, the carer support element as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that is, would be different to every individual. Um, and it is quarter on quarter, we do see different, different uh, categories that come up highest. Um, but yeah, definitely um, the emotional impact of stroke, the the understanding of how it affects your body and 
but it is normal to feel as tired as you feel and to have an understanding of of how fatigue is different to tiredness. So Tyra, for those of our listeners who may not know the difference between fatigue and tiredness, could you explain it? Yeah, I think I heard it best from a stroke survivor who who said to me um, that before their stroke, if they were tired, they would have a sit down in a chair and maybe a bit of a rest and a cup of tea for half an hour or an hour, um, maybe maybe a little nap. And afterwards, they would feel better. They would feel refreshed. But fatigue is different because they can sit in a chair and have a little nap, have a cup of tea, and it doesn't seem to make any difference. It's where your bones feel tired and and your your brain. It's where it's where your body effectively is trying to recover from the massive effect of stroke. Fatigue can last months. Sadly, it can also it can also last years. But having an understanding of uh, of how it works and how to live around it and how to improve mood can really help with fatigue. So Tara, what have you learned about stroke that has really surprised you? I always remember going to the Medway stroke group for the first time and in there there was a lady called Doreen who spoke with an Italian accent since her stroke. Um that always absolutely amazed me that the brain could do such a strange thing. And uh, so if you think about it, every person's brain is different and is very, very complex. And people learn and store information um, in different ways, uh, depending on their own memories and the way they learnt it. And the idea that stroke can affect people so differently just amazes me. And that Doreen post-stroke could could talk with an Italian accent and that people with aphasia who can't communicate can sing beautifully and sing remember songs from their their past and in some cases learn new songs to be able to sing them just absolutely blows me away. Tara what are your views of the arts in relation to health and rehabilitation? Because obviously you've seen uh, and you're aware of the work of Interact. You know, we take professional actors into yeah. hospitals and read to stroke survivors in hospital wards and read to them in stroke clubs. And we've developed, you know, short little plays. I think you may have actually seen one of our little plays um, that we've developed on stroke. So. Uh, I'm I'm intrigued to know what your views are of of the arts in relation to rehab. I think it's I think it's really important, Nerje, because um, not only is it light relief and people can focus and have an outlet to put all their concerns aside and enjoy something and be creative, um, but I think it's more than that. It's about on a, from a scientific point of view, it's about re- rebuilding the brain and encouraging new pathways. Um, so, in our, we've got a, an art group in Maidstone, and there's a gentleman there who never picked up a paintbrush before, never picked up a, a pen. Um, he was a long distance lorry driver, and yet, through coming along to the art group, he has become the most fantastic artist. And uh, he said that he really feels that actually 
he has become much more artistic since his stroke. It's opened up something in his brain that's allowed him to let that creativity in. Um, and he finds it really helpful to communicate his feelings, um, to express himself through his art. He, he has communication difficulty and he has aphasia. So um, I think it's really, really key that he, he can use a paintbrush to pen his feelings. But that's just, that's just one example. I've seen the joy of uh, singing and, and acting can bring to stroke survivors. Uh, I think that it can make a real difference in helping people to recover both emotionally and physically. Even with singing, the, the vocal activity and the vocal strengthening um, really helps with communication and it helps with stamina and fatigue, which, as I said, was, is one of the, uh, the biggest issues post-stroke. Yeah. And as we know, emotionally, um, the emotional impact of stroke means that um, many people feel lost and don't feel like themselves anymore. So if, uh, if people can be playful and creative and enjoy something different or enjoy something they used to enjoy uh that i think it goes a really long way and tara you've you've been with the stroke association for a while now what what would you say is not being done that should be done in relation to stroke survivors i think that it's really important to engage and ask stroke survivors directly what they would like and what they need and i think from our last piece of research, the thing that has come out most is that most people feel the emotional impact of stroke is really hard and that there needs to be more provision for, for this. And I think, you know, we see it's not just stroke. We're seeing the emotional impact of things and services, for example, in mental health. Um, there needs to be more about healing the mind as well as the body. Uh, but could you articulate a little bit further what the emotional impact of stroke means? Well, it can be absolutely devastating to go from walking, talking, snowboarding, skiing one day um, to having a stroke and your entire life being turned upside down. Not only is the, the carer, uh, your, your, your loved one becomes a carer, um, real, roles change within a household, within a family. I've heard fathers say that they feel like they can't be a father anymore to their children. Um, I've heard stroke survivors say that they feel they've lost their position as breadwinner. Um, to go to go through all of that, it's like going through the cycle of grief. I think mm. it can be absolutely massive. It can turn people's lives upside down. Mm. Mm. So, and it's much more than that. Anyway, even even if um, even if people make quite a good recovery and um, are back at work. It's the emotional damage that it does to the brain and the fact that you're left with a lot of questions like, why did it happen to me? Um, and many feel, just feel very different. Mm. Um, so it's, it's having time, I think, to heal and talk and um, to find different ways of adjusting to the new you. And I suppose that additional to that, which makes the emotional impact of stroke such a uh, valid and interesting area to explore further, is is always the question, am I going to have another stroke? Yeah. Yeah, sadly, as we know, it 
about a third will go on to have another stroke, which is a statistic that can't be ignored. I think it's it's almost a shame that that statistic is 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 there because I really want to encourage people to after a stroke to to live their life and um do everything that do everything that they wanted to do before but I think a lot of people are very scared um mm. and are you know are really you know have have ongoing anxiety about will it happen again you have nightmares about will it happen again but and there's that's a big but we all need to be really positive we all need to imagine that as long as you found the reason that you had your stroke so for example if it was blood pressure related or cholesterol related or if you're a smoker if you've given up smoking and uh, you uh, you take medication you have conquered your stroke you've worked out what caused it and you can do your very best to prevent any future strokes i heard a consultant say that he he uh, loves to um meet a stroke survivor who was a smoker and I said that's a bit worrying what do you mean by that and he said well it means I know exactly how to stop them from having another stroke and that's by by them um stopping smoking and it halves their risk Hmm. um but it's a it is about it's about yeah change of lifestyle and uh, making sure that you understand your medication not just take it but you know what it does to you and what times of day you should regulate it um, I think I think there's a lot of work to be done around really uh, really making sure people know what type of stroke they had, what type of medication that they take, how important it is to take it. And finally, what does the future hold for Tara Lakin? I hate that question. Uh, <laughs> dreams. So um, I guess Nerje will have to co-write a play together, shall we? Well, that's quite a good idea. And that's, at least that's a very, very original answer. Good. Yeah, let's let's move on. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Tara. Tara Lakin, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. That was Tara Lakin. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org. And if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.